Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When people think of the paratroopers of World War II, they tend to think of the European theater, the 101st Airborne Division, and the Band of Brothers. But paratroopers were also deployed in the Pacific, and here to unpack their lesser known but equally epic and heroic story is James Finelon, a former paratrooper himself and the author of Angels Against the Sun, a World War II saga of grunts, grit, and brotherhood. Today on the show, James tells about the formation, leadership, and training of the 11th Airborne Division, the role they played in the campaigns of the Pacific, which included being dropped one by one out of a tiny plane described as a lawnmower with wings, how they built a reputation as one of the war's most lethal units, and the division's surprising connection to the creation of the Twilight Zone. At the end of our conversation, James shares what lessons we can all take away from the exploits and spirit of the 11th Airborne. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Paratroopers. James Finelon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. I appreciate it. As a fan, it's a privilege to be here. Well, you are a historian that has written two books about paratroopers during World War II. Uh, Your first book was Four Hours of Fury, which is about the largest airborne operation in Europe. That's with the uh, 17th Airborne Division. You got a new book out about paratroopers, and that is called Angels Against the Sun, which is about the 11th Airborne Division in the Pacific. What's interesting about you as a historian of paratroopers, you were a paratrooper yourself before you started writing about paratroopers. So tell us about your career as a paratrooper and at what point in your career did you start getting interested in the history of airborne operations? Yeah, I think it's actually a little bit flipped. I think it was my interest in in history as a kid that kind of got me interested in enlisting in the service, actually. My uncle was a paratrooper in Vietnam, and his stories of his service and my own natural interest in history kind of led me down that path, and I enlisted in the Army right out of High school, I went to jump school in 1988. I served for the vast majority of my time in what what used to be called long-range surveillance units, which are kind of like small reconnaissance teams, or maybe LERPs is another concept that kind of came out of the Vietnam era, the long-range reconnaissance patrols. And so that's kind of what I did during my service, small airborne operations, six-man teams, that capability, of course, 
nowadays, by and large, has been replaced by drones. I still think they have some of those teams, but not nearly as many as they used to. But it was during that time I got to go to Jumpmaster School and several other schools in the Army. And it was during a conversation with a sergeant. I think I was a, a corporal at the time. We were looking at a picture of some guys who were had their picture taken right before they jump into Normandy, you know, and they were all standing outside of their plane, all kitted up. And the sergeant said to me, he said, wow, the names change, but the faces stay the same, don't they? And it, that comment really stuck with me. And that's kind of what's driven my mission, if you will, to document some of these stories is to tell their story and to have us all connect to the fact that these are all ordinary guys put in extraordinary circumstances. And how have you leveraged your firsthand experience into your history writing? Yeah, I think one of the things that, again, struck me with that comment about the faces never changing, you know, looking at those pictures of those young men in their late teens, their early 20s, was, you know, I think one of the things that makes the greatest generation great is that, you know, it's not a magic formula per se. It's that those guys in particular recognize that, you know, you can't choose what happens to you, but you can choose how you respond to it. And so I think I kind of leverage my service in my writing as a way to kind of initially introduce readers to the normality of these guys, right? In their late teens, their future is uncertain, you know, in most cases, before they even get to the war zone, their primary mission in life is to escape the mundaneness of army life, of service life, right? A lot of these guys have left home for the first time. They find themselves in the army. Every minute of their day is being directed by somebody else as to what to do and where to go and how to do it and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I really kind of wanted to, you know, I use my services as someone who who was in that circumstance as, as a way to kind of bring the humanity out, if you will. I don't, that's maybe overstating it, but... No, you did, I think you did a good job with that. You were able to it really... Ex- the transition from like your know, training life, where it was just boring and mundane, to I'm suddenly thrown in the jungles. We'll talk about that. It was, it was jarring. Um, and you did a good job capturing that. So Angels Against the Sun, it follows the 11th Airborne Division and their campaign in the Philippines and then eventually into Japan during World War II. And I think when most Americans think of airborne troops... They typically think Band of Brothers in the European theater. And I think when most people think about the Pacific theater, they think like amphibious landings. So like, what role did paratroopers play in the Pacific during World War II? Yeah, I think it's a great question and it's a great point of comparison. And I think we'll, we'll use that familiarity of Band of Brothers as a kind of way to explore the topic. Because I think when we first talk about the Pacific and I lean in to answer that, that question, I think the first thing to understand is just the vast differences in the Pacific theater versus Europe, right? And of course, the Pacific is characterized by, you know, immense stretches of ocean between islands. The island hopping campaign is, of course, this concept of of starting basically in Australia and island hopping our way closer to the home islands of Japan, using those islands to build up logistical bases and airfields to then fuel and feed the campaign onto the next island. So that means a couple of things, right? First, the Pacific theater was, was dealing with this concept of scarcity. You know, resources are finite, just like they are in, in any circumstance, right? We never have enough of what we want. And so you're dealing with how do you navigate that? And in the Pacific, that meant, of course, scarcity in that supplies took a long time to get from point A to point B because they were always invariably traveling by ship. Sometimes those ships started as far away as San Francisco. 
And so aircraft were limited. And so that had an impact on the use of paratroopers and parachute operations in the Pacific theater. And then you also had this idea that, you know, Europe had the priority at the time when the 11th arrived in the Pacific theater, it was still very much a Germany first strategy. And so that also had an impact on the scarcity of men and materiel. And so, you know, it's interesting when we look at the European conflict and we compare airborne operations You know, certainly the Band of Brothers, they jumped into Normandy and then later Holland in these massive um, strategic use of airborne forces almost to kind of lay either security on the flanks or seize bridges in advance of the advance, you know, as the armies advanced into Holland. Whereas in the Pacific, what you see is a much more tactical use of parachute operations. And so I'm sure we'll get into some of these more explicitly. But, you know, you go from these massive division-sized jumps in Europe to, you know, in some cases down to individual guys jumping out of observation planes into the jungles in the Philippines. And it's really a great contrast to kind of understand the full range of capabilities of our airborne forces in World War II. Okay, so you wouldn't have those scenes that you'd think of Band of Brothers where just like hundreds or maybe thousands of parachutes falling out. It'd be maybe just a few dozen in the Pacific. Yeah, you know, there was some regimental size drops in Luzon in the Philippines, and those were certainly larger. But even then, when one regiment jumped, you you see the aircraft having to go back to the airfield multiple times to pick up the rest of the troops and bring them in. So when you see a regimental jump in the Philippines, and a regiment's about 2,000 guys, you know, the aircraft are going back to make multiple trips to pick them up and drop them. So it's taking three round trips essentially to drop 2,000 guys, where in in Europe, you see, to your point, you know, it's a one one lift operation, thousands of shoots in the sky at the same time. So it's, again, that, that concept of scarcity and having to make do, if you will. So when was the 11th Airborne Division created? Yeah, so the 11th was created in February of 1943 at Camp McCall, North Carolina. They were commanded by a guy named General Swing. And by Airborne Division, again, using the kind of Band of Brothers example, an Airborne Division was intended to be delivered into combat via glider and parachute. So you had two types of units in an Airborne Division. You had the glider troops, which were guys that were assigned to these units. So, you know, imagine, if you will, for a minute, you're, you know, you're a kid coming out of the Great Depression. You've never been in an airplane you're assigned to the 11th Airborne Division in a glider unit. So your first ride in an aircraft is an engineless glider. You don't get any additional hazardous duty pay like the parachute troops, and you don't get a parachute like aircrew do, right? So if you think of, you know, aircrew and bombers or, or fighters, they all had the safety net, if you will, of a parachute, whereas glider troops didn't have any of that. And then the other units, of course, were the parachute units. And in the case of the 11th Airborne, that was the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment. These guys were all volunteers. One of the more notable volunteers in that unit was Rod Serling, the creator of the Twilight Zone television series. Of course, that was after the war. And these guys, you know, like Rod Serling, were attracted to volunteer to the parachute troops because of the the tough nature of their training in many cases. Rod Serling wrote home to his parents after he volunteered that he thought going through the tough training would make him a better soldier and make him a better man. And so he was looking forward to that challenge. Other guys were motivated because they liked the uniform. And, and then, of course, they also all got paid $50 more a month for hazardous duty pay. And that, of course, attracted a a wide share of recruits as well. 
So yeah, it came across all you know socioeconomic. There's you know people from the country, rural, city, rich, poor. It just it attracted a certain type of person. You know, of course, there's guys who wanted the money, but a lot of guys they just like the prestige and the the toughness of it. That's right. I think it's a great observation because of that wide appeal of of that elite status, if you will. It did attract every every walk of life, right? You had some guys that were you know, rodeo clowns all the way up to Harvard graduates who wanted to test themselves and join the ranks of of these elite soldiers. So when it was initially formed in 1943, did they know they were going to be going to the Pacific or was it just like, okay, you got, we're going to use you somewhere. We're just going to get you prepared for whatever, wherever you're going to go. Yeah, so the short answer to that question is no. They did not know that they were going to the Pacific. Of course, one of the favorite, you know, Topics of conversation when guys are sitting around with time on their hands was where are we going to be deployed? You know, and there's raging rumors and debates on which direction they were going to go. Uh, but it wasn't really until they were leaving Louisiana they did a series of training exercises at Camp Polk, and it was when the train started veering left, meaning they were going west towards the west coast, that that was when it dawned on them that they were in fact headed to the Pacific Theater. So this was led by a guy named General Joseph Swing. Tell us about this guy. What was his military career like before he was put in charge of the 11th Airborne? And what was his personality like? Yeah, Swing was an interesting character. I I really enjoyed learning a lot more about his military career. And I would say that where we start to see his leadership style kind of emerge was not long after he graduated from West Point. He graduated, he earned his commission rather as a artillery officer in 1915. Not long after that, he was assigned as a young lieutenant into the punitive expedition or Blackjack Pershing's expedition into Mexico. And this was really the Army's first experiment with mechanization. So this is right before World War I. The Army at that point was, you know, you're either moving on your feet or on the back of a horse. And the expedition into Mexico was really the first time the Army started integrating in things like vehicles, cargo trucks to move troops. They had some very rudimentary armored cars. They were using motorcycles to deliver messages and for scouting. They had a handful of biplanes that they were using. And so what you see is is Swing is really exposed to this, this concept of modernization early in his career. And probably the biggest impact that had on him was that there was no doctrine at this time, right? So these guys are getting all this new equipment. Nobody really knows how to incorporate it into their scheme of maneuver or how they're going to actually conduct their, their campaign. And what came along with that, of course, was a series of cautionary tales, right? These things broke down or they didn't arrange to have enough fuel for them in the field. And so they were waiting on guys to bring, you know, gasoline forward. And so all of these things were kind of witnessed by Swing. And and in my opinion, and I think I, you know, I try to make the point in the book, you start to see later in World War II where he's, he becomes very comfortable with, for lack of a better word, making things up as he goes along. And I think that that flexibility of mindset was developed in this early part of his career. And then from there, of course, he went on to serve in World War I uh, with the 1st Infantry Division and then worked his way up the ranks until he became the commander of the 11th Airborne Division in early 1943. Another leader of the 11th Airborne that had a big impact on the division as a whole is this guy named Colonel Oren Haugen. Who was this guy? What was he like as a leader? Yeah, Haugen was another interesting character. He's kind of what I call an OG parachute guy. So he, as a captain in 1940, he was a company commander 
in the Army's first organized unit of paratroopers, the 501st Parachute Infantry Battalion. And he kind of came at things, parachute operations and airborne, from a very different perspective than Swing did. So Swing, you know, you could almost use the term, you know, kind of big army. He viewed parachuting as simply a means to get to work, a commute, right? A unique commute to get to the battlefield. Whereas Haugen had come up through the ranks, and like I said, as a captain in this initial parachute unit where it was drilled into these guys that they were elite. At that point, the parachute battalions were very similar to the early days of the Ranger battalions. So they were, you know, elite infantry raiding units that were intended to be used to jump behind the lines and blow up bridges and railroad lines and seize airfields and things like that. So Haugen really leaned into this concept of self-reliance. And again, if we use the Band of Brothers as a comparison point, you know, their motto of we stand alone together. Well, Haugen and the 511th trained right there at Camp Tokoa and ran Kurahi, just like the guys from Band of Brothers did. And so Haugen really embraced this concept of self-reliance and relying, you know, on the guy next to you and not being the weak link, so to speak. And he really led by example. He led all the runs of the unit up Mount Kurahi. He would yell at them, you are the best, you are the best, and encourage them to run faster. But he was a very, you know, strict taskmaster. And so his men's nickname for him was Hard Rock. And that was kind of in reference to his hardcore way that he viewed their training. He was extremely competitive. He wanted to win and be the first at everything. So he formed a regimental boxing team, a regimental football team, and was constantly relieving coaches and players to make sure that he got the best guys in there uh, to win at whatever whatever they were doing. And he also, I think one of the important things about Haugen was that he recognized early on that the time for his leadership, his officers, to established trust with his men was there during the training. And that was the time to establish trust with the enlisted men, right? If you waited till you got into combat to establish that trust, it was too late. And so he was really a hard taskmaster on his junior officers to get them to, again, lead by example, put their men first and establish that trust. So you mentioned some of the training they did before they got shipped out. I always love reading about the training of the paratroopers in World War II. Tell us more about the training. What was it like? Yeah, so jump school at Fort Benning at the time in World War II was four weeks long. And so that was kind of the individual training or the individual skills to jump out of an airplane was done at Fort Benning. Four weeks long, there was some ground training where they did, you know, going through mock aircraft doors and and learning how to perform in the aircraft. And then there was Tower Week where they're learning how to do parachute landing falls. You know, and one of the things, again, that's important to remember at this time is that the vast majority of these guys had never been in an airplane. And so for most of the recruits at this point, the first time they're in an airplane is the same day that they're going to jump out of it. And so, you know, the Army spent three weeks, and in some cases four weeks, getting these guys ready for that event through a series of, you know, the crawl, walk, run kind of strategy, if you will, of building them up over a period of weeks to then the final week being jump week, where they spend that week making five jumps culminating and then their graduation from that event, right, where they earn their jump wings. 
The jump school today is very similar. The big difference is in World War II, you spend a week learning how to pack your own parachute, which is not something that they do anymore. They now have a dedicated group of professionals, fortunately, whose job is, is to pack those parachutes. Because as you can imagine, packing a parachute is a perishable skill, and it's something that you want to be uh, expert in. So they, they, now they leave that to experts to do that. And then they would, you know, the units would get together and then start going through a series of unit exercises to where then they started to learn how to perform as squads and platoons and maneuver in those larger elements as a team. And so, as you said, they didn't learn they were going to the Pacific till they were on the train and they started going west. When they got to San Francisco or wherever they shipped, did they get shipped out of San Francisco? I think that's yes, that's right. Yeah. Shipped out of San Francisco. Where did they go initially to the Pacific? So their first destination was to New Guinea, just north of Australia. At that point, New Guinea had largely been secured. There were still some Japanese holdouts on the far side of the island, but the 11th Airborne did not see combat on New Guinea. They went into a training regimen there and took advantage of the fact that they were now in an environment in the terrain very similar to what they would be fighting as they moved into the Pacific. And so, again, you start to see here Swing and Haugen's personalities really start to influence how the division would fight. They started going through a series of, you know, fairly elaborate live fire exercises incorporating, you know, live ammunition, mortar fire, artillery fire. And we know that it was realistic training because, unfortunately, several guys were killed by friendly fire in those exercises. So it was very demanding. They also had the benefit of being trained by several Australian soldiers who had already been fighting the Japanese, so they incorporated those lessons learned. And it was really a, a time of, of development for the division as they started figuring out how to operate in this jungle environment. What year was this? Is this 1943 still, 1944? This is middle of 1944, so okay. they had just arrived in May of 1944. And what was the state of the war in the Pacific at this time? Yeah, so at this point, the Allies were pushing their way across the Pacific, working their way again as, as, as in line with that island hopping campaign. New Guinea had largely been secured. So this was when MacArthur was in the process of fulfilling his famous I shall return promise that he made to the Philippine people. And the Americans invaded the Philippines in October of 1944. The 11th initially sat out the invasion. And it wasn't until November of 1944 that the 11th Airborne landed on the island of Leyte, initially in an administrative capacity. So they were just kind of, if you, you know, you can imagine following along that island hopping campaign and landing on a secure beach after it had the invasion had already started. But pretty quickly into that campaign, MacArthur and his ground commander, a guy named Walter Kruger, started realizing that they were suffering higher than expected casualties. And so the 11th was kind of then pushed up into the line to fill in as replacements and start moving into combat. So what was the objective on Leyte? Was it just to take back the island? Was that what it was? Leyte offered what they thought at the time was going to be access to a number of land-based airstrips which would put the Allies in a great position to then use those airstrips to extend their air power to the other islands in the Philippines, specifically the main island of Luzon, as well as use them as bases to cut off Japanese sea lanes where they were bringing in the raw materials to, to still feed their war machine, if you will. Now, there were some assumptions that went into that initially, which failed to take into account the horrific torrential rains on Leyte. So these airfields that MacArthur and his staff had planned to use turned out to be 
you know, muddy quagmires at the time that they landed in October. So things didn't quite work out that way initially. And the 11th Airborne was brought in and then pushed up into the Central Mountain Range to cut off Japanese reinforcements that were working their way from the west side of the island over these mountains to try to come down into the valley where those airfields were located. So these guys were trained as paratroopers and gliders. Did they do any paratrooping and gliding at Leyte? So, yes, kind of. No no gliding, but this is where we start to see swings, flexibility, and, and improvisation is the way that I like to think of it. So as these guys started moving up into the mountains, you know, th- this is basically like light infantry tactics at its finest, right? There's no roads going up into the mountains, so there's no jeeps can get up there, no trucks can get up there. All the supplies that are going up into the mountains are man-packed. And so if you think about it, you know, these guys are going up like these little trails. You've got a division going up into the mountains and you've got to keep them supplied, right, with both food and ammunition as they're gauging the Japanese. And so at some point they get up to this plateau and this is where Swing starts to utilize the unique airborne capability of his division. Of course, aircraft being in in short supply, as I mentioned earlier, what he did have access to was a handful of these small single-engine observation aircraft. One guy described them as a lawnmower with wings, right? So think is the smallest airplane you can imagine. They literally bring it ashore and then bolt the wings onto it. And so Swing tapped a platoon of his airborne engineers, so 30-some-odd guys of his combat engineering unit, and one by one, they climbed into the back of one of these aircraft and then jumped into the jungle with their shovels and demolition charges to expand and create a drop zone in the middle of the jungle. So these guys were literally climbing in, wrapping the static line of their parachute around the spars of the chair in the back seat of this airplane and parachuting in. Well, so those guys, 30 of them soon landed one at a time. They started chopping down trees, using demolitions, and expanding the footprint of that drop zone so that Swing could then start dropping in supplies, additional men and materiel into that forward base and using that as a way to then keep his men supplied. You know, surgeons jumped in there as well, parachuted in which allowed the rest of the unit to then keep pushing forward up into the mountains. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. 
It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. And what was the fighting like at Leyte? Yeah. So I think, you know, when we think about the fighting on Leyte, I, I always like to begin with just the elements themselves. And so, you know, like I, I mentioned, it had been raining for a number of weeks on Leyte. So the first enemy that the troopers actually engaged was just the mud. You know, they're hiking up into these mountains. The mud, in some cases, is, is shin deep. Everything you own is wet. You've got disease. You've got the heat and humidity. So they hike their way up. And then that's when, as they're in the mountains, that's when they start to engage with Japanese patrols. And as they're up in these mountains, it's really, you know, the whole 
advantage in the way that the American army had geared itself around technology advantages and firepower advantages were really negated by the mountains because you couldn't get any of that stuff up into the mountains. You couldn't get artillery pieces up into the mountains. You couldn't get a lot of these larger radios. The mountains were covered in clouds, so air support was difficult. The maps were horrible, so nobody actually ever really knew where they were. These maps that they had were often hand-drawn and had villages mislabeled and entire ridgelines or mountain peaks were missing from them. And so that was kind of the conditions under which these guys moved up into the mountains. And then, of course, on top of that, they had the enemy, the Japanese, which started, you know, you almost kind of imagine this head-to-head collision up in the mountains as you had squads of the American paratroopers going forward and, and in these very close combat conditions, bumping into squads of Japanese who were heading in the opposite direction. And the Japanese, they were just formidable opponents. And then at this point, the, for the Japanese, they kind of understood like this, the generals and the leaders there, they understood that their backs were against, were against the wall. So it was kind of turning into a fight to the death for these guys. Yeah, I think a fight to the death is, is a great way to describe it. At that point in the war, the Japanese leadership was really, you know, their strategy was to win just one massive campaign, right? The strategic concept kind of was like, well, if we can bring the Americans to their knees in just one battle, you know, hit them with heavy, heavy casualties, maybe we can approach, you know, uh, a treaty on equal terms, right? And of course, the Americans had already made their unconditional surrender kind of demand. But that was the idea of the Japanese. And so they were throwing in troops, you know, and in in these seeking a decisive victory, if you will. And one of the things, one of the traits of the Japanese soldier was this concept of Yamato Damashi. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But it's this idea of, you know, uh, an unwavering belief in the righteousness of their cause. And these guys were kind of steeped in that ethos, if you will, that kind of involved equal parts, Bushido, Shinto religion, and of course, honor played an important component of that. But it was this idea of, well, if we're brave enough and if we fight hard enough, our spirit can overcome technological advantages that the enemy has. And it was interesting because up in the mountains of Leyte, when those two elements came together, and at this point in the war, of course, all of the Americans understood that the Japanese were not going to surrender. They understood from, you know, the news that had leaked out about the Bataan Death March that they could expect to be treated very poorly as prisoners themselves. And so it really devolved into this battle of attrition because neither side was willing to give up. The Americans weren't going to give up. They're not going to put themselves in a position to where they're going to be taken prisoner. Japanese units were fighting to sometimes 96, 97% of casualties. And so you really get this, this you know, head-to-head, no-holds-barred combat up in the mountains of Leyte. And, and honestly, in, in all the Pacific campaigns were very similar to that. Well, you also talk about there was reports from American soldiers that the Japanese, at some points, they would just attack with a samurai sword. And it was terrifying. I mean, usually they got gunned down, but it was terrifying to see some guy coming at you with just a sword. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of those things that's just really, it's kind of hard to comprehend the, the terror of that when you've got guys, you know, human wave attacks coming at you with swords over their heads. The Japanese bayonets were extremely long. So that, that's intimidating as well. You know, there was one, one veteran I interviewed remembered Uh, He shot a guy that was running towards him in a bonsai attack, and all he was armed with was a fountain pen. He had a fountain pen, like, raised up over his shoulder like a dagger. You know, that's how 
fanatical some of these attacks were. All right, so they took Leyte, it took a month. And then you talk about after they finally took control of the island, they had to do this mopping up. Like, oh, just go mop up. And then basically that was to go find Japanese forces that were still there in hiding. But you talk about the mopping up was actually more dangerous than the actual assault. What made mopping up, quote unquote, more difficult or dangerous? Yeah, I'm glad you put the mopping up in quotes because you know it's one of those terms that is easy to overlook. You know, I think what you had there was even a, a bigger level of desperation, right? When you're dealing with these Japanese units that have been, you know, in many cases overrun or bypassed, you know, so imagine, you know, a group of Japanese on a hilltop where the Japanese have kind of, you know, the Sun Tzu kind of way of just gone around that hilltop, isolated it you know, we'll come back for it later type of thing. Well, when you come back for it later, you've now got Japanese who are cut off. They're viewing their mission now is to, to take as many Americans with them as possible. And so there's just no real easy way to go about doing that. Again, you could, you know, at one point, Swing did utilize the unique capabilities of his division and dropped in four small artillery pieces. So they did have some heavier firepower at that time up in the mountains to kind of help them in these situations where they're trying to, you know, winkle out these holdouts. But, you know, they're in caves. They're not going to come out. You have to bring the mountain down around them, basically. And Swing was very good about using flanking attacks, and he despised kind of frontal assaults that some other army commanders were very comfortable with. But it was just very nasty, dirty work to go up there and try to get into these fortified positions and get these guys out of there. So what was the result of Leyte? So apart from that, we took control of the island. What were casualties like? And how did this, I mean, this is kind of, this is the 11th, like first, like it was like baptism by fire. How did this affect them for the rest of the war? Yeah, so I think, you know, the the Haugen, Hard Rock Haugen's unit came out of Leyte. It took them a month of trekking from one side to get to the other side of the island, coming down out of the mountains on Christmas Day, essentially, is when they started to emerge on the far side of the island. They had a number of casualties, some of which they had left buried up in the mountains, so there was efforts to go get those guys. They had, I want to say, right, right around 500 casualties from that fighting. They had just as many, if not more, guys that were suffering from disease, up in those conditions. But, you know, Haugen did the math when they came out of the mountains and he and his men were boasting of a 45 to one kill ratio of their time up in the mountains. And so again, this is where you start to see the real aggressive nature of, of Haugen and Swing, both really always wanting to maintain contact with the enemy, always wanting to move forward. And so they kind of boasted of this kill ratio, if you will, as a way to you know, set expectations for the unit, for the division, as to how they were going to continue to, to lean into the fight. Did that give them a reputation amongst the Allies and the Japanese? Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the interesting things about the 11th Airborne Division is that, you know, I use the term punch above their weight. So, you know, both the 101st and the other Airborne Divisions that were fielded during World War II were only 8,500 men in the division. And so this made them, in most cases, a little bit more than half the size of a regular infantry division. So a regular infantry division was anywhere between 14 and 15,000 guys. And again, the 11th Airborne was 8,500. So, you know, to to kind of develop this this reputation of doing so much damage with about half of what they had to a regular division. And of course, that also included having far less artillery than a regular infantry division did. It really bolstered their reputation. And you, you know, you see them, particularly with General Eichelberger, one of MacArthur's field commanders, really leaned on the 11th Airborne for their aggressive spirit. So what happened to the 11th after Leyte? 
So after Leyte, MacArthur had moved on and moved his invasion next to Luzon, which was the main island in the Philippines. Of course, the main prize of that campaign was to be Manila, which was the capital city. Before the war, it was known as the Pearl of the Orient, you know, and I think it's important to kind of get a good idea of what that city was like. It had just under a million people living in it, so it was a massive urban area. Many of the boulevards along the bay there, the reason it was called Pearl of the Orient was these beautiful wide boulevards where people could stroll to watch the sunset. Many of the government buildings rivaled anything that you would see in Washington, D.C., you know, with these massive white marble columns. I mean, MacArthur had hoped that the Japanese were going to declare Manila an open city, meaning that they would withdraw their forces out of the city to avoid what would become, you know, massive bloodshed in an urban battle. You know, the Germans did that in in Paris. They declared Paris an open city and left so that it wouldn't turn into the bloodbath that it could have. Well, that didn't happen, unfortunately, in, in Manila. And so as MacArthur's campaign was slowing down, he had landed several divisions to the north, was pushing down towards Manila. He decided to launch several other landings, if you will, s- south of Manila as a way to kind of divide Japanese forces. The 11th Airborne Division was assigned to one of these landings. General Swing really advocated for airdropping the division in total. So again, using gliders and, and aircraft to land them south of Manila. Unfortunately, again, we see a lack of aircraft. So there just wasn't enough aircraft at that point to be able to lift his division. And so they ended up going in kind of what he described as half a loaf, meaning that half a loaf went in amphibiously, meaning he landed his glider units along the shore. And then further inland, he airdropped Haugen and his men south of Manila to where the two units then linked up on the ground, his glider units and the parachute units linked up and then started pushing their way north up into the city limits of Manila. So how did the fighting differ in the city compared to the jungle? What were the unique challenges? The main thing was just the urban nature of it. So as the 11th was moving up, the Japanese had anticipated the Americans returning to the Philippines and that they would be attacking Manila. So they had built a belt of defenses along the southern edge of the city, right? Their initial thought was that MacArthur was going to attack from the south. He didn't. He attacked from the north. But the 11th did attack from the south. So they ran into this belt line of defenses, which the Japanese had labeled the Genko line. Think about this as a series of pillboxes, machine gun nests. These are built out of brick. These are built out of bamboo tree trunks. They have taken aerial bombs and buried them in the ground as mines across the road. They've overturned bulldozers and city buses across the roads to create blocking positions. And so it really just becomes this, you know, brick by brick concrete battle as the 11th start pushing their way up into the city. They're swarming through the city. They're finding, you know, Japanese holdouts in attics and in basements behind them as in areas they thought they've already cleared. They start to, you know, the 11th and swing start to really work with Filipino guerrillas who are really important in this battle for the 11th because, of course, they know the terrain. They know the layout of the city. They know a lot about the Japanese defenses because, of course, they watch them being built. And so Swing really starts to leverage several battalions worth of Filipino guerrillas in his scheme of battle. There were some pretty epic exploits by the individual members of the 11th Airborne. I think at this point, there's a guy named Manny Perez who basically, he won the Medal of Honor for this, what he did. Can you talk about what he did at this point in the war? 
Yeah, so Perez was a member of Haugen's Parachute Infantry Regiment. He was uh, 21 years old at the time of this attack. So they were working their way up through this Genko line. At this point, they had pushed their way north and were now kind of maneuvering east, if you will, trying to hook around some of these defenses. His unit had been engaged all morning in attacking several pillboxes. The counts vary, but the general consensus is they had taken out his squad and platoon had worked their way through 11 Japanese pillboxes. And the 12th one had really had the squad pinned down. It was a dual twin-mounted machine gun that had you know pretty good field of fire over some open terrain. The squad had gone to ground in front of this. And as the story goes from the lieutenant who was up front trying to figure out how they were going to attack this position, he looked over and all of a sudden... Perez, and his nickname, his buddies called him Manny, was sprinting forward towards the gun position. And they yelled for him to get down. He kept going. He threw himself down on the side of the gun position within hand grenade range. He threw a couple of hand grenades into the machine gun position. Right as they exploded, he's jumping up and you know following them in. Finds several Japanese guys that have been wounded. He quickly shoots them. Japanese soldier approaches him and attacks him with his bayonet on the end of his rifle. Perez ends up taking the rifle away from him, killing the guy with his own rifle. And then at one point beating three Japanese guys to death with that rifle, ends up breaking that rifle, grabbing another one. It's really one of those stories that if you put it in a movie, it would be hard, hard to believe. But at the end of it, Perez had taken the machine gun nest and his Medal of Honor citation cites that he had killed single-handedly 23 of the enemy in that action. He was, to your point, awarded the Medal of Honor. Uh, It was interesting because several of his comrades that witnessed the event actually disputed the citation, wanting to amend it because by their count, during the entirety of that morning, Perez had actually taken out anywhere from 70 to 75 Japanese during the assault on all those other previous pillboxes. So he was quite quite a one-man machine. Sadly, even though he survived that event that he was awarded the Medal of Honor for, it was awarded posthumously because he was killed later on in the campaign. So the 11th, they take Manila, the 11th with other divisions as well. What happened to the 11th after that? So one of the more interesting exploits of the 11th campaign while they were on Luzon was their liberation of the Los Banos prison camp. So when the Japanese had invaded the Philippines, they had taken prisoner several thousand civilians. So think of, you know, Americans, French, British. These were, you know, engineers who worked on the island, entrepreneurs who owned businesses, clergy on missions, things like that. And the Japanese had put them in a number of prison camps, some of which were in Manila proper. Los Banos was a couple of miles, maybe 20 miles outside of the city limits. It was a camp that held a little over 2,000 of these civilian prisoners. And MacArthur and his staff were worried that as the Japanese were being pushed across the island, that rather than evacuate these prisoners or just simply release them, that they would execute the prisoners. And so... MacArthur put Swing in charge of figuring out how to rescue these guys. And this, again, is where you see, you know, Swing's kind of flexible approach to his war fighting. The plan that his unit came up with was a kind of a multi-pronged 
attack that started with a ground assault by his reconnaissance scouts. They worked in conjunction with the Filipino guerrillas to sneak up to the outskirts of the camp. They timed their assault to be launched simultaneously as the Japanese were conducting their morning calisthenics. So the only armed Japanese were the guys that were around the perimeter of the camp. Everybody else was in there doing their morning exercises. Right as that happened, a company of guys parachuted in on the far side of the camp. So about 120 men parachuted in and they joined in the assault. While that was happening, the rest of that battalion came across the lake in amphibious tracked vehicles that then made their way into the camp, knocked down the gates of the camp with those tracked vehicles. And they loaded all of the prisoners onto those tracked vehicles to to evacuate them. It was a raid, meaning that they were just going in to rescue these guys and then get out. And so it was, you know, stunningly successful. None of the prisoners were killed in the crossfire. A couple of them were wounded, but nothing serious. Unfortunately, two of the guerrillas were killed in the firefight, but all of the American rescuers were evacuated unharmed as well. So this is about February 1945 when that prison liberation happened. And then the next couple of months, the 11th Airborne along with the other divisions there, they, they eventually secured the Philippines. Was it pretty easy after that point, after they got Manila, or was it hard fighting even then? Um, it was pretty much hard fighting all the way across the island. Again, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting to note, I think that just provides some additional context, you know, the last Japanese soldier to surrender in the Philippines took place in 1974. Yeah. And so that gives you kind of an idea as to the tenacity of these guys and their willingness to stay in the fight. And so, you know, again, we use that term in quotes, mopping up. There was a lot of mopping up in Luzon. Swing kept pushing his division east across the island as an attempt to kind of cut the island in half, if you will, as other units were both to the north and the south of them as they made that cut across. And it was, you know, it was similar, similar combat, you know, pushing through, sweeping past some of these more heavily defended areas, cutting them off so that they couldn't get resupplied with food or reinforcements and then coming back and dealing with them later. You know, at one point, Swing had a, a garrison of something like 300 some odd Japanese kind of cornered on this mountain fortress that they had built. And they sent a guy up to try to get the Japanese to surrender. The Japanese shot at the guy who was bringing up the surrender terms. And so Swing was content just to sit back. And I think something like they launched a thousand artillery shells a day at this place until it had finally just reduced it to rubble. And that again was just kind of that, that battle of attrition that took place all across the Philippines. So they finally took it towards the middle of 1945. And at this point, the military was getting ready for just an all-out invasion of Japan. What was the 11th Division's role going to be in that land invasion of Japan? Yeah, so everybody, all the troopers in the 11th were convinced that they were going to be dropped into the Japanese main island as part of MacArthur's invasion. If you go look at the actual plans that were drawn up. The 11th Airborne was going to be used in that invasion, but as far as I can find, they weren't actually going to airdrop them in. Again, maybe that was due to a lack of aircraft. The plans that I've seen indicate that they were going to be landed amphibiously, but the guys at the time didn't know that. The guys at the time all assumed that they would be finally being used in one of these massive airdrops that, you know, we've already compared 
Europe to. But of course, that didn't happen. The United States dropped two atomic bombs, which then brought about the surrender negotiations and ultimately the end of the war. Did they occupy Japan? Did they play any role in that? Yeah, so this is where you finally kind of start to see the small size of the 11th Airborne Division play into their favor. So they were the first troops to be air-landed in Japan. They had flown from airfields in Manila, initially to Okinawa, where they staged for several weeks. It's kind of a misconception that the war ended immediately after the atomic bombs were dropped. There were several weeks there where, you know, there was internal debate going on in Japan about how to respond to the bombs, how to approach the surrender terms. Those were ironed out. And then several after the division had sat on Okinawa for several weeks, they then flew from Okinawa to a small airfield outside of Tokyo. They secured that. All of the guys from the 11th flew in fully armed expecting a trap you know one of the one of the troopers commented that wow the japanese surrendered as hard as they fought and so there weren't any incidents once they landed fortunately there was compliance with the surrender terms and a couple of days after they got there macarthur landed at that airfield for the eventual signing of the surrender documents on the missouri when did these guys go home did they go home in 1945 Some of them did. It's an interesting kind of return, if you will. You know, so similar to what we saw in Europe, there was the point system of when these guys, you know, you earned points for how long you'd been in the service, if you were wounded, things like that. The 11th itself stayed in Japan for a number of years as an occupation force. So their initial mission, once they landed in Japan and secured that airfield, was disarming the populace. So the Japanese had armed millions of civilians for this big fight that was anticipated to occur on the home islands. And so occupation troops were responsible for patrolling, conducting inspections, and overseeing weapons turn in. And so the 11th kind of came home in in drips and drabs and ones and twos as these guys would get on ships and make their way back to the States. What happened to some of these guys when they came home? I mean, did did a lot of these guys have a hard time kind of processing what they went through? Yeah, you know, of course, we know a lot more now about post-traumatic stress than we did back then. It was, you know, largely undiagnosed. Interestingly enough, I think one of the most vocal guys on that topic was was Rod Serling, who, you know, he certainly didn't call it post-traumatic stress, but he certainly knew what was going on. And he talked about himself and his friends that had come back, and there was those that had been physically wounded, and then, of course, those who had suffered mentally from their experience. And he he talked pretty freely about that and some of the challenges he had. And that's really where he turned to writing. He he found that as an outlet. Of course, now we know that writing and talking about it is a great way to kind of excise those demons, if you will. But that was kind of his way of going about it. And of course, I think if we look at the, the Twilight Zone, you can certainly see some of the themes in those episodes that he wrote of trying to kind of explore humanity and the perception of what the human experience entails. Yeah, you can see that definitely in the episodes. The themes like, you know, war is bad. That was a theme you see in Twilight Zone. Also, the Twilight Zone, it kind of had, there's like a, an empathy for people dealing with mental illness that you, I don't think you saw in other shows, but you saw that in the Twilight Zone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the most horrific events of the war took place right in front of Rod Serling's eyes. You know, when they were up in that that forward base that I was talking about, you know, they were dropping supplies into them. And sometimes those supplies were just literally thrown out the side of a the airplane. And at one point in that campaign, they had gone five days without food because the clouds had socked in the mountain where they couldn't get aircraft up there. So the clouds finally broke. The planes are flying over to push out these crates. 
one of Rod Serling's best friends that jumps up and, and, and is impromptu singing a song about food, you know, getting a laugh out of everybody when all of a sudden one of these crates falling out of the sky crushes his skull and kills him right in front of everybody who's sitting there watching him in this moment of glee that he's getting ready to get some food. And again, I think, you know, so you can imagine yourself sitting there as a 19, 20 year old and, you know, all of a sudden this moment, your best friend's head is caved in. And I think Rod spent a lot of his life trying to process those, those kinds of things through the exploration of his writing and his show. What lessons about life and being a man do you hope readers take away after reading about the 11th Airborne Division? It's a great, great question. I, I think, you know, there's so many interesting lessons to learn from both Swing and Haugen in, in the way that the unit comported themselves during the war. But I would say one of them was this concept of flexibility or imagination, right? It's the idea of, you know, when we see that in Swing's comfortable take on how to not stick to doctrine or not stick to a plan when it wasn't working. And I think that's something we could all benefit from, right? You know, we got to be comfortable and objective enough with ourselves and our approach to understand when we might have to pivot and attack something from a different direction to make it work. I think also the idea of initiative, right? In, in, in the 11th Airborne, that meant always taking the initiative, always pushing forward, always keeping the enemy off balance. Whereas I think in our daily life, you know, always looking for opportunities to stay on the initiative, there's always something that we can do to help ourselves, to help others. And that's certainly within the spirit of that, you know, always, always leaning into a scenario or a task. And then finally, I would say endurance is another big lesson that I certainly understood from learning more about these guys. And by endurance, I mean both physically and mentally, right? I think one of the things that got them through some of that horrible jungle fighting was both their physical and their mental endurance, right? So staying in shape, staying in the game. And certainly your podcast gives us lots of tools as far as mental and physical endurance. Well, James, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, so the book is available at all the usual suspects. You can order it online on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. If you want to learn more about me and my work, you can go to jamesfenelon.com. Fantastic. Well, James Fenelon, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. My guest today was James Fenelon. He's the author of the book, Angels Against the Sun. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, jamesfenelon.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash pacificparatroopers where you find links to resources we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so at Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AWIM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminding you to not listen to the AWIM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. 
coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.